Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 29th of November, 2021, and this is episode 233. On today's Dispatches podcast, Dr. Michael Lo Cicero, an independent scholar and the commissioning editor at Helian & Co., talks about his recent book, A Moonlight Massacre, that has just been released in its second edition. This book explores the last and forgotten operation to be carried out in the third Ypres campaign on the 1st and the 2nd of December 1917. This book is published by Helian & Co., and Michael spoke to me from his home in Birmingham. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the last battle of the Third Eats campaign? Yes. Uh, hello. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for having me here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about myself and, and the book. Uh, the book of Moonlight Massacre, about the last, um, the forgotten last act of the Third Battle of Eats, uh, was a labor of love, a project that I worked on for over a decade. For myself, I originally hailed from Pennsylvania in the United States. I've lived in Britain for 10 years now, and I am a Helium Company commissioning editor. Uh, um, I handle the uh, uh, day-to-day editing preparations for publications for the company. So why did you write this book? Well, I was in EAP sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s, and at that time, there was a antiquarian bookshop on the lower level of a of what they called the shell hole bed and breakfast. It was run by an ex-parent. And I was just doing an ordinary shelf browse on a summer day. And there was a dog-eared copy of the 8th Division by Borston and Bax, uh, published in 1926. Uh, the 8th Division was involved in this last operation in Flanders in late 1970. And I pulled it off the shelf and I opened it up just to a random page and there was a map and it said Passchendaele, 1st and 2nd and 2nd of December 1970. And I thought, what's this? I never heard of this. And the next day I went out to that particular area and I was standing uh, at Moselmark at what was known at the time of, uh, uh, in wartime as Vindictive Crossroads on the British maps. Now it's a, it, 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 it's a traffic circle uh, or a roundabout. And, uh, and I thought, well, I looked east and I said, well, it happened out there someplace. And when the time came for me, I had the opportunity to do a, to do a uh, because of my employment, I worked at a university, I was an administrator. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, earn a free master's degree. Uh, and I decided that this would be my topic because it dawned on me that it was something that wasn't covered. So for example, if you look at the British official history, uh, it's completely ignored. And there's a reason for the reason being is, is that by the time the official history of the 30 campaigns published in 1948, you know, there had been another world war. Uh, the British government uh, was looking to wind down this series of volumes and the, uh, uh, um, the compiler and uh, the head of the um, historical section for the Committee of Imperial Defense who wrote a number of the volumes, uh, Brigadier General J.E. Edmonds, uh, you know, he was in his 80s. And I'm sure, certain he was aware of this particular operation, but it is not mentioned at all in the official history. 
And so I saw the opportunity to maybe do something uh, that really, well, you know, I've heard it said a number of times, you know, forgotten is used in a lot of titles and uh, books, especially military history books that are published these days. And uh, in this particular case, as I've been told by a number of people, that um, the subject that I picked, the forgotten, uh, definitely does apply. One of the subtitle is the forgotten last act of the third battle. And uh, uh, it, 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 there is, there is grounds for that because it has been ignored in the historiography. So tell us the tactical situation and the size and state of each of the opposing forces before the um, operation starts. Well, the tactical situation is 30 officially is closed down by British GHQ on the 20th of November, 1970. Of course, I'm sure most of our listeners know that that is with the opening of the Battle of Combine, which is contemporaneous with this particular operation that I read about. And the situation uh, added is that a, a good, a large portion of the Passchendaele Ridge had been captured by the British by the time that the offensive was closed down. However, to the north and the northeast, portions of the ridge remained in German hands. Interesting, um, and, and in, that, in that particular area, you have a salient, the Passchendaele Center, of course, where the Germans are able to uh, overlook the British positions and bombard them from three sides. Sometimes if you count the Holocaust far as farther west uh, from the rear even. And so within this salient, uh, only a limited amount of guns could be played, but uh, it, which rendered it extremely vulnerable to protect. But in addition to that, the Germans controlled all the important observation points. It's a sad state of affairs that after the Canadian of October and November 1970, which creates most of it, we have another British Corps, the second Corps, more on them shortly, but operating on the left. But uh, the British Eighth Corps took over under Lieutenant General Sir Elmer Hunter Weston. His chief of staff was the Gallipoli, official history Gallipoli author, of the, the official history for Gallipoli, uh, uh, Cecil Aspen, Brigadier General. And he wrote a report and a very damning report that said that, you know, we're holding this, it's quite vulnerable. The Germans could pinch it out quite easily. But in addition to that, we don't have any good observation point uh, uh, looking into the German rear to the northeast and the northwest, which was true. And one of the interesting things that I discovered in the research that I did that there was a key eminence. It's not much of an eminence unless you stand on it today, which is one of the things that you know that you're fooled by the geography when you go to Ypres. If you are looking from the British perspective, you know, from east of Ypres, looking towards the advance towards the Passchendaele Ridge. It, it, it doesn't, it, it, there isn't much there that you can discern that would seem that, you know, the enemy had such, you know, great observation points overlooking the British positions. It isn't until you actually stand on it and you look back west that you see. In this particular case, there was this hillock called Hill 52. It's on the road from Passchendaele to West Rosabica. West Rosabica being a town or um, on the very um, northern extremity of Passchendaele Ridge. And Hill 52, supposedly, if you read the British official history and the uh, um, uh, and the Canadian one, they claim that the Canadians captured Hill 52 on uh, the 10th of November, which was the last attack, official attack of 30. The reality was is that I noticed in looking at the documents about concerning the 2nd of December attack is that Hill 52 was in German hands and was an objective on 2nd of December. I thought, well, how could that be? Maybe the Germans captured it in their repost 
sometime in November or, or you know early December 1970, but that but that wasn't the case. And then I found what the key, well, you know, what what actually had happened. And there was a, a second army intelligence that was um, compiled uh, not long after the 10th of November attack, where they discovered that although the Canadians claimed that they captured Mokutu, what they actually needed to do, they, what they captured was, was the southwest slope. And what they needed to capture was the, 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 the actual height itself, the top of the hill. And, uh, and then they would be able to dominate the uh, German, uh, um, uh, what I would call like billeting villages and, and, and the outlying area in front of the uh, rail center of Russelbergs, which was one of the objectives of the offensive. And so uh, they misreported this, that they had captured the height. And it was, this was discerned later that it wasn't. Farther to the, north, to the northwest, there was a, uh, an outcrop of the Passchendaele Ridge, which was called the Vat Cottages Ridge, named after a German strong point there. And on the 10th of November, the British 1st Division of the 2nd Corps tried to capture that, and they failed. So if you capture the Vat Cottages Ridge, if you stand on the ridge today and you look east, well, actually, you look north, or you look northwest, it dominates all the low ground in front of Bulbaton and towards the Haltus Forest. So this was deemed vital ground for the Germans. So this was this was the situation when uh, the uh, um, when this operation was sanctioned. Because what Aspinall in his report said is, we have no good observation points. This 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 salient is a death trap, and the two choices we have. To try and prove the position or fall back. And his suggestion to fall back was almost where the offensive began. And if you think about, you know, a campaign that had raged, the Northern campaign since the 31st of July, it was just, it would have been a disaster to give up all that ground after so much expenditure of lives and treasure. Uh, it would never have been allowed. So the only choice that they had was to try. As far as, uh, um, Morale. Morale at this time in the Second Army and troops in the Ypsilian, as opposed to some other areas, at least based on the letters of the time, would have been deemed by British censors to be quite low because, of course, of the conditions that prevailed at 30, which I'm sure most of the listeners are familiar with. You know, uh, the ground being just a little bit above sea level, uh, being exposed to enemy fire from all sides. At one point, Rawlinson had taken over command, General Sir Henry Rawlinson had taken over command of Second Army prior to this operation from, from Herbert Plumer, who had been sent to Italy after Caporetto. And at one point, Rawlinson wrote in his diary about the Passchendaele salient where this operation would be launched from. He said that the conditions there were terrible, with dead lying all over the place and no way to bear no way to bury them. So being sent up to the line there, it was a real descent. Uh, uh, in, into, you know, uh, was it descent into the primal? I think one author described it. In one of the neighboring divisions that didn't take part in the attack, there was a, an American medical officer who was attached to one of the battalions. And he was, he just couldn't believe that men could live in the conditions that men were living in, which is, you know, shell holes filled with water, no place in the daytime to expose yourself if you have to release, you know, yourself, uh, uh, um, Really, uh, you know, uh, only time things could be done, food could arrive, was after dark. And the Germans would have pegged all of the avenues of approach, which in the case of the Passendale salient was one road. 
and a duckboard track that ran parallel to closer towards Passchendaele. Defenses, uh, I, I the defenses for both sides are fairly rudimentary. With the Germans, the Germans are relying on a defensive system which uh, they call Gewehr de Gefestfelder, the hidden, hidden battlefield. So they have linear defenses, but they're in shelter and they're not easily discerned from there. Uh, and so you can set up a linear defense, you know, uh, um, uh, based on uh, like the 0815 light machine gun, you know, advanced posts. Uh, you know, it's the usual German defensive depth on block houses, uh, which provide cover or can be defensive positions. There was one exception where the 8th Division attacked, the uh, defenses there were linear. And the reason was, is, and I, I didn't realize this until touring the battlefield. I was in a motor car and I was heading down a road not far from Passchendaele. And this would have been in the, on the right-hand sector of the British attack. And it's called the Dornkorstrat. And, and I wondered, you know, well, why did the Germans retain these linear positions? It was two redoubts with a trench that ran in. And the Southern redoubt was called the Southern redoubt, more than the Northern redoubt. In between was the, uh, um, what they called Venison Trench. I thought, why would they continue to hold a trench that was discernible even from the air, let alone from the ground? Why didn't they disperse their forces? Why hold this position? And of course, when I came abreast of where the trench actually lay, that whole panorama towards Rosalar, the billeting villages, the outskirts of that important rail center, were all in view. That's why the Germans, you know, held on to it tooth and nail. Um, logistics, I touched on that slightly, but of course, you know, they're difficult because uh, you won't have a light railway running up to the salient until after the attack was launched. So once again, everything has to come up by carrying parties, mules, horseback, whatever, has to come up uh, that single road and the duckboard track to the front line. And guns, I mentioned this briefly, but guns, very limited deployment of guns. Uh, and, 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 and that's a problem uh, when, the, when, when the attack plan uh, is discussed. And I, I'll address that later. As far as the unit strengths and sides, it's two divisions are involved. But what you have is with the 8th Division under Major General Henniker, uh, you have one brigade and three battalions are attacking and one is in reserve. Where the Vat Cottages Ridge that outcrop I mentioned, jutting from the Passchendaele Ridge, is uh, that's the 32nd Division under Major General Cameron Shute. And Shute wasn't leaving anything to chance. And so when the attack goes in, it's a reinforced brigade. So four battalions from the 97th Brigade and then two additional battalions from the 96th Brigade. One of those battalions of the 96th Brigade is what they called an attack, a counterattack counterattack battalion. And that's solely in place for if the Germans, uh, uh, which would have been expected, launch an immediate counter. Why did the British want to launch a, the uh, the attack? And what was their tactical and strategic rationale for this decision? Well, I, I touched on it a little bit before, but essentially it is to improve uh, obs the, the, the observation capabilities of the positions that they hold. Because it has to be kept in mind from a strategic sense, Hague and we know now in retrospect that it's uh, it, it, it was never going to happen, okay, for a number of reasons. But Hague was was planning on continuing the Flanders in, in the spring of night. And I know, you know, uh, with the reputation that the campaign has, that sounds insane. However, you know, two of the objectives 
where Rosalon, Corona, I mentioned Rosalon, but these rail hubs, capture those. And the Germans have to evacuate Belgium, which is one of the major British warriors. And Rosalar, I mean, if you go to the battlefield today, the area where this attack, and you, and you look at those vantage points, well, especially as far as the 8th Division is concerned, you can see Rosalar is not that far away. It's a, I've done it by car. It's a 10 or 12 minute drive. And you have to remember also that the German defenses in Syria at the time, they're not what they were in the summer of 1917 because they've been pushed back. You read the German regimental accounts and other document, I mean, archival documents, German archival documents that I looked at, you know, the defenses at least in uh, late 1917, early 1918, they are in an abysmal state. But of course, you know, the whole strategic situation is going to change. And I'll touch more on this later, but you know, also keep in mind that, you know, uh, what's happening is, is Russia is about to leave the war, you know, is beginning negotiations for Brest. But also, uh, you know, the German the consequence of that is, you know, uh, the Germans are preparing for their spring offensive. They don't want to go through another, you know, so that's what they're preparing for. So, you know, Haig's plan, it, which is outlined, it's a wonderful outline. In, uh, if anybody's ever seen, if anybody's ever read the old, um, I'm sure many of the listeners have, Colonel Reppington's The First World War. He meets um, uh, Haig's chief of staff. Um, anyway, he meets Haig's chief of staff and, 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 and Haig's chief of staff outlines the whole plan, what they're going to do in 1918. This is the plan for the Flanders offensive. So, so, so you have that um, uh, as far as the, the grand strategic and the strategic um, uh, um, uh, aspects to this particular operation. But from an operational sense uh, a perspective, they were planning on clearing the entire ridge during the winter. Uh, there's a map that I found in the Second Corps um, in the Second Corps files, and it shows the piece by piece uh, um, objectives as different divisions would be brought in. Because of course, they couldn't stay at the line for very long because of the conditions of the field. But they were hoping to at least dominate West Trozebeek. There was some discussion between Hagen and Bronson about capturing West Trozebeek, this village or this town on the northern extremity of the ridge. But uh, at one point, and he doesn't say why Rawlinson writes in his diary, I've decided not to go for Withrosby, which, you know, by implication is they're going to try and dominate it from the high ground around it. Uh, and Haig concurred with this. So you know, the end game is to clear the entire ridge by the spring of 1918 and, 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 and then launch an offensive downhill into, I guess, what you would call, you know, the Bruges Basin, you know, and threaten Lusselar. And you know, and, and possibly Perot. Certainly, capturing Rousselar would put pay to German, you know, um, railway communication. You know, it's what happened in 1918 when the Germans, you know, gave them they had they had to they had to evacuate Belgium. So, how does the attack go? Ah, well, <laughs> fortunately, it was a bit of a disaster. And just a, a very brief background to the attack: it was because the Germans held Hill 52. And the fact that the 32nd Division, the 2nd Corps, what's odd about this particular attack is, is that it's launched on the boundary of two corps. And then when, and, and then after the attack fails, Hunter Weston is given charge of the entire Passchendaele Salient. And you would think that oversight of one corps would have made more sense than having two corps, uh, uh, um, different command structures, oversight and uh, over, um, oversee an attack, you know, on the boundary of their two formations. It makes no sense. 
And uh, uh, so 32nd Division had the most difficult task. It was to capture Hill 52. But how can you form up men in daylight when the German observers on Hill 52 will see everything that's going on? Plus the ground they had to traverse, you know, going down to a valley and forming up below the back cottages ridge. 32nd Division had a much, I'm sorry, 8th Division, the neighboring 8th Division had a much, uh, uh, you know, it's relative, but had, a, had a, a less difficult because they were advancing from west to east, whereas 32nd Division was advancing from south to north. But because guns couldn't be massed in the salient as, uh, you know, as it stood at that time, the guns that supported 32nd Division had to fire what they called a concentration barrage. They were firing from west to east, but the infantry was advancing from south to north. And the technology at the time, the skill of, 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 of Royal Artillery could not do this, could not fire an enfilade creeping barrage. Plus the fact that the troops couldn't form up in daylight. 32nd Division had this problem. So Shook came up with this plan and he was always a proponent of night attack. And so what would happen is, is that the infantry would form up and they would advance and for the first eight minutes, there would be no barrage. And they would overrun the German outpost, line, which was like the early warning system for the line that followed. And it wasn't a, we're not talking about, you know, a, a, a distant advance, okay, a, a very long, a, a long advance, um, as far as depth goes, but just far enough to seize these first objectives that they wanted. And uh, uh, um, so they would go in with the bayonet, they would overrun the, German outpost line, and then they would be on the, the final objective before the German garrison knew it. The problem was, is that Henniker, who commanded the neighboring 8th Division, said, well, you know, we don't have those same limitations that you do with our guns. We'd like to have a creeping barrage. But um, what happens if in those eight minutes, and eight minutes is a long time in war for an operation, a lot of things can go wrong. What happens if the Germans detect our troops advancing during those eight minutes, and they achieve dominance with their machine gun. You know, what do we do then? And Henniker had a number of, of suggestions. And there was, you know, that uh, they would engage the machine guns with Lewis guns. They have the you know, post ready. They, one of his battalion commanders would fire a flare to, uh, um, uh, would, would fire a flare to uh, um, signal for an artillery bombardment, at least as far as the 8th Division was concerned. Uh, but these were all turned down by both corps commanders. Hunter Weston of the 8th and Jacob of the 2nd, based on Schutt's opinion that they would cause confusion. And so 8th Division had to adhere to the 2nd Division. And so what happened on the day is, and it's, it's, it, it, it's sad, because they did achieve surprise in the sense that the Germans had no idea, despite the fact that subsequent British reports were certain that the Germans knew they were coming. I looked at the German intelligence reports for that time in that sector, and they didn't know. They didn't know. In fact, there was a false alarm that there would be attack on, uh, I believe, the 27th of November. So they had no idea when the attack was coming. Uh, but they achieved the surprise in as much as they were able to form up opposite the German positions without being detected. The problem was, is when they began to move, that's when they knew. At one point, in one of the German regimental histories, a German officer sees milling about in no man's land below the Vat Cottage's Ridge, and he thinks it's a relief in progress. But when they start moving, that's when they're detected. Interestingly, about being detected, shoot insisted on a night attack, and night attacks are very viable things. And, and of course, attacking in pitch darkness is problematic. So, for instance, in the Second World War, we, uh, people who are familiar with Monty's moon, Moonlight in the, the Northwest Europe camp, 
they were launching a night attack and uh, and it was cloudy, they would aim searchlights at the clouds and the reflect and, and the reflection would 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 result in a relative darkness, you know, with some moonlight. Uh, and it was very helpful and, and it's necessary for the troops to maintain their direction and an organization. Unfortunately, what happened with this particular attack at Passchendaele is, is that just prior to the assault, there was some snowfall. And uh, I actually saw, I, I was staying with friends in Warsaw and I saw the conditions as they were, they lived in the country and there was snow on the ground. It was a light snow and there was moonlight and it was almost like daytime. Interestingly enough, I also found from the second world war, you know, it wasn't just um, rocket scientists that both sides were interested in the East and West after the end of the second world war, uh, especially for uh, um, uh, the British and the Americans, they were interested in German officers who knew about the Soviet army or the Red Army. And uh, there was a pamphlet, you can, you can find it online by a German general who uh, on night attack was written for the US army. And uh, uh, I quote him, uh, when discussing, you know, why the attack, he says that uh, a combination of moonlight and snow is the equivalent of daytime, and so that gave the game fairly well. Regardless, when when both brigades rushed forward, uh, some of the battalions got absolutely nowhere, and others were able to seize ground. And it, I mean, I can't, you know, it, 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 I, I I can't go into detail. You would really need a map. Uh, um, and I realize it, uh, the, the time that we have in this podcast, but essentially the Germans achieved fire dominance. They did lose some ground, but they were able to, to launch a counterattack, which was quite a tired one, but it didn't take too much to force the British back, especially on the left and 32nd Division sector. And the reason was, is that so many officers and NCOs became casual, uh, so much so that after the attack, General Schuch, uh, goes as far to blame the men uh, for the reason for the failure of his division. In 8th Division, uh, they see some ground, but uh, Venison Trench, Northern Redoubt held out. Uh, Southern Redoubt was seized, but lost. And so they were only, when it was all said and done, they were only holding a position just in front of, of, of the objectives that they were to capture. Uh, 32nd Division, except on the very far left, uh, one of the battalions, uh, the, the uh, 15, 16th Lancashire Fusiliers was able to seize most of their objective. But overall, it, it was kept, it, it, the attack was a, was, a, was a complete failure. And prior to it even being launched, I mentioned about those series of operations that were to take place subsequent to, to capture the remainder of the ridge. Those were all canceled. So it became a local operation. They even They'd given up that ambitious part of the, of, of, of the operation even before this attack was launched. What were the political, operational, and human and strategic consequences of the attack? Yes. Well, you know, political, political and strategic, I'm going to combine the two of those. It's quite interesting because with the failure of the operation, Henniker was against it from the start. He called it a beastly operation in his diary and didn't think much of shoot or his plan. Um, but he pressed for the operation to be continued. To him, it was a, uh, it really was a matter of reputation. I believe this is true because uh, he, had, he had been in the rifle group and he died in 1936. And in his obituary, uh, they state that when he commanded the 32nd Division, 
every operation that he was tasked with as commander of formation was a success, except for this attack at Ashendale, which of course, until my book was written, nobody had heard of. Okay, probably pleased by that. He would have been. But uh, you know, this one particular uh, um, uh, failure. And uh, certainly prior to the attack, his predecessor, General Major General Strickland, commanding the first division, should came to see him and basically boasted we're gonna do. So it, you know, it was important to him that this would succeed. And he wanted to use another brigade to um to recommence the attack. Whereas on the right, I could find nothing in the surviving documentation where Henniker or his brigadier, who was Brigadier General Coffin, VC, first general officer to win a VC in the first one, uh, they certainly weren't pressing for it. So what happened was, and this is where the strategic comes in and grand strategic matter, is Shute appeals to his corps commander, Jacob, who appeals to Rawlinson, the GOC of the Fourth Army, who appeals to GHQ, and it goes to Haig's chief of staff, Davidson. Okay, and uh, Davidson's response on the 3rd of December is quite interesting. And what's going on is that uh, on that day, uh, there's, a, there's a meeting about um, reinforcements for the BEF in Whitehall. Lloyd George, Lord Darby, the Secretary of State from one of the work, members of the War Cabinet. And Darby brings up the, the question about reinforcements because, well, you're going to have to rely on what garrison troops that we have in there, we're not going combing out, you know, vital things like that, we're not going to be getting there. Simultaneous with that, of course, it comes out that the Bolsheviks are beginning negotiations with Imperial Germany to leave the war. And so, you know, certainly Haig and, 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 and his staff at GHQ were this. So by the time uh, Davidson responds to Rawlinson about whether this attack continues, it's basically, it, well, what I find interesting is what seemed necessarily important 24 hours, less than 24, is now, you know, what we're done here. And it's essentially what Davidson says as well, given the current situation, you know, we can't justify any more, you know, loss of, you know, life and less of life in the sense of soldiers that we're going to need for 1980. And, and, and of course, it's also at that time that Peg notifies his army commands that they're going to be going on the defensive and that we need, they need to prepare for, you know, what will probably be, you know, a major German onslaught in the spring. So that's, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me. And you could say, well, you know, things are fluid and more decision making or, you know, the criticism could be, well, you know, you have two relatively, well, for the 8th Division, the 8th Division had been very heavily involved in 30, but had been rested, held quiet sectors, you know, reinforced, and, you know, is sent to take part in this attack and hold the line in this place. 32nd Division was up on the coast, and it had seen hard fighting uh, during the German spoiling attack there in July, but it was a division that that uh, um, uh, had not served uh, at Passion, had not served in the 30 campaign yet, and they were relatively fresh. So in, in comparison to other divisions that had fought there. The other thing that put paid to it, of course, would be uh, the German counteroffensive at Kambrach, which is simultaneous with this. And the need to send, even at this time, the need to send reinforcements to Italy. Rawlinson is still being asked to send guns farther, you know, to Italy or to the Cambrai front. And uh, he just doesn't feel like he has the ability to continue the offensive. But ultimately, you know, these big things that are happening uh, put pay to this particular operation. Um, 
as far as uh, um, human and careers are involved, there was a concern amongst the British High Command, especially after the, the, the German counteroffensive at Cambrai and, and, and the debacle you know, caused by that. I mean, they lost almost all the ground that they gained and almost as many prisoners that they took from the Germans when the offensive opened up on the 20th of November. So there were a lot of commanders that were concerned about, you know, whether they retained their positions or not. And uh, I, I don't have any evidence for this, but I can guess, but I'm certain based on what Schutt wrote about the operation afterwards, in his case in particular, he was concerned about, you know, being punished for this reverse, especially after the promises that he made that, you know, that it would be a success. Uh, it certainly comes out to the ports that he writes, but nobody lost their positions because of this particular attack, except for one person, it's quite an interesting chap, was one of the battalion commanders in the 32nd Division. Uh, he was part of the, uh, the 96th Brigade, or 97th Brigade, excuse me. And uh, uh, his commander would have been uh, Brigadier General Blackhawk, who was a very able commander. And it's sad because his battalion, the 11th Border Regiment, seized all of its objectives as opposed to its neighbors, and uh, but couldn't hold them and then retired in the face of the German, German counterattacks that developed. And uh, unfortunately, uh, his name was Tweed, Thomas Edward Tweed. Unfortunately, he was on the uh, verge of a nervous breakdown before this attack even occurred. And I found in his file, which survived the, uh, uh, the public record office vetting in the 1950s, uh, handwritten notes that he wrote to the Italian medical officer, basically asking to be sent down the line. Now, I didn't see this after until my, my thesis was finished and I was working at the National Archives. But it's quite interesting because uh, uh, if you look at the war diary for the 11th Border Regiment, it was so sparse because the officer casualties have been so high. And I think Tweed had to write it. And so Blacklock had decided that he had to go and felt that he was unfit for this. And Tweed anticipated, but he's essentially, he sent down the line sick. And uh, Shoot writes an, um, um, Blacklock writes an adversary, and Shoot confirms it. Although Shoot, who uh, Shoot was uh, has a reputation for being a bit of a martinet, the GOC 32nd Division, Shoot wrote that although he tries, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tweed is not fit to command a battalion in France, and he was never employed again. Interestingly enough, he went on to be Lloyd George's chief political advisor in the. 1920s and, and, and 30s, when I, this would have been when, when Lloyd George was in the political wilderness. And uh, there is some evidence to show that uh, Tweed was the only, when was the, was, the, was the father, the actual father of Lloyd George's only child with Francis Stevenson, his secretary during the war, and, and then, you know, wife uh, after uh, Lady Lloyd George died. So uh, an interesting chap also wrote a number of novels, one of which was made into a film uh, called uh, Gabrielle Over the White House, about a fascist dictator that takes over in the United States. A very interesting chap, but he seems to be the only one who suffered as a result of this, of this particular operation. And there's two letters to the war office where he wants to be employed, even training troops in the United States, doing something that they wouldn't contest, but they make they make some really sobering reading. It was obvious uh, that uh, this particular operation, in addition to what he experienced before, took a real toll on it. Uh, as far as uh, casualty, 
German casualties I wasn't able to discern. I had to make a guess because of the reports that survived in the Bavarian archives. Even though Bavarian troops weren't involved, this was part of the army group, Crown Prince Ruprecht. And uh, I, um, uh, the, the actual period that I needed did not survive. It should have been, you know, uh, I, I don't know why that is, but from the German regimental histories that I looked at, and they didn't all uh, um, provide casualty figures, but my guess would be that German casualties killed, wounded, and missing, rough estimate about 800. Now, British casualties, I can give you a, a, a fairly accurate figure, more accurate than the original reports provided. And the casualties would have been the highest with the 32nd Division. But uh, they amounted to, and, and, and I compiled this based on Commonwealth War Graves Committee data. And I wouldn't say it's 100% accurate, but I think it's the closest that I've come. They amount to 1,689 officers uh, killed, wounded, and missing. That's the, that was the total that I came up with. So very heavy casualties uh, for an operation of its size. And when you look at 30, you know, it's a, it's a campaign of ever-diminishing expectations. You know, the, 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 the sub-battles the, the, are... are uh, um, uh, they involve less and less men, especially after Brunsheim on the 4th of October. I mean, certainly the last official attack on 10th of November involves uh, um, the 1st Canadian Division and the 1st British Division attacking side by side. There are no other attacks occurring elsewhere on the entire front. And, uh, you know, and, and, and of course, although it's not part of the question, just one of the things I want to just why is this battle ignored in the historiography? And it had a lot to do, I think, with uh, the battle nomenclatures, which in the early 1920s decided how, I mean, decided what, you know, the campaigns and the battles and the actions, which I guess is what you would call this particular operation, you know, what their official nomenclature would be. And, and, and they completely disregarded this attack to the point of where Brigadier, at the time, I think he was a captain, E.A. James, wrote a book uh, a small booklet on the list of the battles and uh, the campaigns, battles, and actions of the British Army. It's published, I think, in 1923. And he says in the introduction that, uh, you know, uh, there is an emphasis on the earlier battles because the BF was so much smaller. But, you know, as the BF increased in size, you know, by 1916 through 18, you know, there are some things that have been overlooked. And he said, so for instance, a two division attack that occurred on the Passchendaele Ridge in early December 1970, you will not find that. And so it doesn't even really have a name uh, in the uh, this particular attack. I mean, some people who have read my book, will, you know, they refer to it as a Moonlight Massacre. That title came from, uh, from it was a subheading in one of the battalion histories, I was, the 16th Highland Light Infantry, in, in the uh, um, Beck's Order of Battle of Divisions. For 8th Division, they have, um, it's called, uh, operation against the Southern Redoubt, something to that effect, which was just one of the objectives of the 8th Division. You had Venison Trench and you had Northern Redoubt, whereas 32nd Division, after the attack at Newport, the German repost there on the 10th of July, there's nothing in their battle nomenclature. It's quite odd in as much as, you know, uh, I think had this operation been a success, I mean, Schutz's plan, considering the conditions that prevailed, you really can't fault it. Uh, it, it it's very innovative, but it, it just seems to be, uh, you know, it was such a, uh, a, a depressing affair, how it turned out. It just seems to have been 
you know, sidelined and, and forgotten in the history. So what do you think this case study tells us about the British way of war and its military performance in late 1917? I wonder whether it sort of shows the typical sort of army of lions led by donkeys or whether it's an example of an army going through a learning curve uh, or learning process, as it's called, or was this just an operation which was impossible in the first instance? What do you think? Well, well, you know, I I mean, I would certainly say, might surprise some people, but certainly the conclusion I came to about the planning and preparations for the operation, it shows a fit for purpose approach. And uh, Andy Simpson in his book on Corps Commanders in the Great War, I think is a, a must read, especially if you're writing about something like this, but he talks about, um, he refers to the formulaic approach to operations. Uh, and this would be especially the case with Second Army. Once Second Army takes over the, you know, uh, uh, the main part of the 30th offensive, uh, um, whereby uh, formulaic meaning is that Army would draw up a list of objectives with a map that they would forward to Corps. And then it was up to Corps to liaison between assets, military assets that they had, and those with divisions to carry out the orders. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned, the conditions in the Passchendaele set, the fact that any kind of coherent operation could be launched says a lot for, you know, my my fit for purpose comment. You know, certainly mistakes were made. Maybe the most serious one, not taking into account the consequences of the snow on the ground. They did discuss it and should dismiss, dismiss the concerns which I believe came from Henniker, uh, um, uh in a damning statement. I, it was one of these statements of, I have heard it said that, you know, large bodies of men cannot be seen at 30 yard distance when there is snow on the ground and the moon is full. This is not my experience. But, you know, it was discussed. The court commanders decided to back shoot. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, like, in, you, know, you know, errors are made. I know one of my reviewers, after reading the book, he said that the story made him angry, you know, because these men were asked, you know, to accomplish this task, which he viewed as impossible. And maybe he was right. But, you know, I always think, I, I think it's important that, you know, what seemed necessary and important at that time, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, you know, we all know this, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily apply here. And it did seem necessarily important at the time. And it seems that everything was done that could be done to make this operation a success. You know, the usual sorts of thing, practice attacks behind the lines, you know, the gathering of intelligence. They even, unlike taking into account the visibility with the snow, if they could have even done that, okay, uh, um, they even, as for, for those battalions that were going to be participating in the attack that were in the immediate rear, they did practice. They sent officers out to see how long, like to estimate how long it would take them to get to the line. And of course, in those conditions, it took hours and hours and hours, okay, before they arrived there. But, you know, it seems like every precaution was taken to try to make this a success. And so, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say lions led by donkeys. I, I think Schutz's plan was the best, you know, that could be, that, you know, that, you know, the circumstances that we could be come up with. You know, whether or not it was necessary or not, I mean, it can be argued either way. Certainly to the Germans, you know, you read in the, in the intelligence reports uh, in, the, uh, in the in the regimental histories, it was vital ground that they were not willing to give an inch on. You know, uh, they lost a good portion of the main ridge, and they weren't going to allow the British to gain any more ground. And of course, in that 
mission, they were successful. And my last question, with Christmas almost upon us, where can people learn more about your work and where, more importantly, can they get the book for a good and well-deserved Christmas present? Yes, actually they can. Uh, it is available, you know, on, 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 on most of the retail book sites and, you know, Amazon, Waterstones. Uh, I recommend ordering it direct from Helion and Company. Uh, um, and by that time, uh, I mean, uh, uh, um, we certainly had a discount uh, and I suspect, uh, you know, there'll be another one available for the holiday. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Much appreciated. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>